bent over and with, uh, because of a, an unclean spirit. And he did it on the Sabbath day, which created some uh, consternation. And uh, there's just a lot of uh, ups and downs in Jesus' ministry as far as the responses people give. You know, there's times when the multitudes are there and things look great, and there's times when he gets a lot of criticism from the Jewish leaders. Um, but in the middle of all this, he does a lot of teaching about the nature of the kingdom. Uh, which is what he does in these two little parables. So 18 to 21. <clears throat> so he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds <clears throat> of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So he's comparing the kingdom of God to a mustard seed. What's the what's the mustard seed's claim to fame? Yeah, it's little. And the kingdom looks so small, so weak. Um, you know, the kingdom power didn't seem like much in, during Jesus' ministry. Uh... So, you know, um, he heals a crippled woman and this and that, but, but he doesn't make any big splash in the Roman Empire as a whole or anything of that nature. But this mustard seed has enormous potential, and so does the kingdom. And it'll become great. It'll become, you know, uh, this mustard tree. It reminds you a lot of a little section in Ezekiel 17 verses 22 to 24, where a sprig was taken off the cedar and plucked uh, plucked up from the cedar and planted and became this great tree that all the birds and the beasts would, you know, find shade in and nest in and so forth, which was really a messianic prophecy. So I'm, I wonder if Jesus may have even, you know, taken that sort of as a derivative of that statement in Ezekiel 17. Then he compares it to leaven. And uh, we know that it doesn't take a whole lot of yeast to make a whole lump of uh, dough rise into bread. And that's the point he's making. Now, it's kind of interesting that he used leaven for the kingdom of God. What is leaven usually a symbol of? Of oh, Yeah, sin, wickedness. Uh, you know, so we, like they had to get the leaven out uh, of the congregation in 1 Corinthians 5, which was the man living with his dead mom, and, and things like that. Um... So it's kind of odd that it refers to the kingdom, you know, something positive here. But that happens. Sometimes figures can be used positively and negatively. Can you think of other figures like that in the Bible that go both ways? The lion. The lion. What is that used for? Satan and Jesus. Satan and Jesus. That's pretty, that's pretty dramatically different, <laughs> right? And uh, mm-hmm. so, I mean, sometimes a figure, it, it has an application both ways. Just like evil... You know, it's contagious and corrupts. So the kingdom of God is contagious and, and leavens. Um, now, how much flour did the woman put that leaven in? Three pecks. You know how much that is? Three say that. Uh, <laughs> three what? That's something my margin said. Oh, about, about 60 pounds. So we're talking about enough bread to feed a small army here. 
You know, but it still wouldn't take much leaven for those 60 pounds of flour. Is it all in the pantry by the time it got done? It was coming out the door? <laughs> probably, probably so. I hope they had a big container. Uh, yeah, wow, that would, that would really do the trick. Um, so, you know, they're looking for something that is impressive to start with, but you think about how that bread would grow and rise, and wow. Just and and what what little bit of leaven there is to do that, and so God's grace grows in us and fills us and transforms us. The kingdom of God grows on the earth and and makes a lot of impact, even though it was very um, quiet. And, you know, the, the kingdom of God doesn't call attention to itself a lot. Um, so often we can feel discouraged. You think about the disciples in Jesus' ministry. There are so many ups and downs. And really, when it's all said and done, it seemed like they made such little progress. You think about how few people were following him when he was on the cross. Um, but God often op- operates in small ways. Think about uh, how Elijah had to learn the lesson that God wasn't in the fire, he wasn't in the wind, he wasn't in the earthquake. He was in the still, small voice and the gentle blowing, whatever your translation says. But the idea is God doesn't always do things dramatically. He does things effectively. But you don't always see it. It's not always, you know, impressive. So just two parables that really show the growth of the kingdom, how it starts out small, it doesn't seem impressive, but, but you know, it's got the power of God behind it, so it will amount to something. Thoughts and comments? It reminds me of Zechariah where they talked about who is despised the day of small things. Yes, Zechariah 4. <clears throat> yeah. And that's a great illustration. I mean, illustration. You think about so many things like that, where God has used something that looks very weak and worthless and makes it into something impressive. You know, David killing Goliath. And Isaiah talking about like the dew and I can't remember. It was like a couple of things like that that looked like little small things that <coughs> made a big impact. Uh, more, that's not coming to me right now. I think you're right. Um, oh, so it's like the dew and the rain that comes down from heaven. It will not leave. Is that is that is that Isaiah 55 then? Uh, I don't remember. I thought you would know. Well, I thought I would too. <coughs> no, I'm talking about. Um, yeah, the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without uttering this. Chapter 18. Oh, yes! Yeah, you're right. I knew it was in there somewhere. Uh, yeah, you've got uh, the dazzling heat in verse 4. Uh, do you have to do there? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The end of verse 4. Like cloud of dew in the heat of sorrow. It's very good. Well, well thought. Say, oh. Yeah, that's good. Isaiah 18.4. Good analogy. I mean, that's, that's a principle of how God operates. So it's not surprising that you see it cropping up in various places. Anything else? Okay, how about 22 to 30? And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from the east and the west and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are, the, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. There are several of these statements about Jesus going to Jerusalem in Luke. I, I'm not sure if we should take these as all referring to one long journey, maybe his final journey to Jerusalem, or they're just different times he heads to Jerusalem. But however that is, he's on his way teaching, and people are asking questions. He seemed to be approachable. There's a lot of times he teaches in response to questions and comments and things like that. Certainly does that quite a few times in Luke. And so he does that here. And uh, this guy wants to know, are there just a few who are being saved? I think it's a pretty good question. The answer ought to be interesting. You know, are there just a few being saved? But uh, what's Jesus' answer to that question? He says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. But it's almost like he's saying, don't worry who else is being saved. You go look for that. I mean, it reminds me of Peter and John and Jesus on the shore after the resurrection. And don't worry about him. That's right. Exactly. The question really isn't how many are being saved. That's not really that important for me. What matters is, am I? You know, let's focus on that. If everybody's saved but me, it's not going to do me any good. And if nobody's saved but me, I'll still be in good shape. You know, so just speculating about the quantity is really kind of not that important for me. So Jesus kind of revises the question. You know, it's not how many, but what about you? You know, strive to enter in through the narrow door. You know, the word strive means to really strain every muscle, you know, make every effort. You know, you're not going to be easy, but better really work on it. That's the thing. And, and there's several reasons why he says you need to really give diligence to enter in. For one thing, there's not everybody who seeks to enter in will be able to. You know, not everybody who tries to will. You know, effort doesn't guarantee success. The door's narrow. And so, you know, it's it's not like, you know, falling off a log. I mean, there's a lot of people who want to and not very many people who do. And secondly, there's a time limit. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, it's too late. You know, so it's like, well, if you don't do it now, you won't be able to later, which makes it really consequential. It's like, wow, there's such urgency in this. You don't put it off. Uh, think about the parable of the virgins. The door was shut. You know, then they couldn't couldn't get through. Uh, we're not used to things that can't be changed. And uh, then they the the fact that that a lot of people think they're safe. They're like, well, we ate and drank your presence, you taught in our streets. You know, they had all this contact with Jesus, and and they really thought that they thought they were fine. They didn't dream that he was going to reject them. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of scary that there's going to be plenty of people who are going to assume they're saved that are going to be in for a you know, it's a terrible surprise on the judgment day. And uh, the consequences of not entering, entering in are terrible. It's of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Everybody else is in and you're out. Uh, Matthew mentioned seven times the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, so, I mean, whatever it takes to get in, you better get in. Uh, but it, it's just this idea of the way you think it's going to be is not the way it'll be. You know, you'll see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you'll be out. And everybody will come from way far away, and they'll get in, you won't. So it's like to expect surprises. You know, there'll be some unexpected guests when we get there. 
And uh, there'll be some people who are sure they were in great shape who won't make it. Uh, because it's really not based on merit. It's based on God's grace and our uh, humbling ourselves to receive that. Uh, so, so Jesus is really trying to shake him up a little bit with the answer to this question. So he kind of does answer the question. Well, he does, but he doesn't in any just very concrete way. Right. Get the but impression. It indicates not, that there will be. There's not going to be a whole lot, although they'll be, they'll come from all over and will recline. So it's not like there's going to be an extremely small number either, but it's, it's, the, Problem is, it's like you were going to think you are and you aren't. I think that's the most uh, kind of disconcerting thing about this. Other thoughts or comments, questions? Okay. Um, how about uh, thirty-one to thirty-five? <clears throat> on that very on that very day, some Pharisees came, saying to him. Get out and depart from here before Herod wants to kill you. And he said, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You don't expect this. Who warns Jesus that Herod wanted to kill him? The Pharisees. The Pharisees. Pharisees. Wanting to kill him. I think. I know. So that's like, well, thanks, but why would they be trying to help Jesus uh, save his life? I think they're probably just trying to get him out. That's what I think. I think they're trying to frighten him and intimidating him, intimidate him into leaving their region. Some people think they really were trying to help him. Uh, but I, my guess is... You know, when, he, when, they, when, when Luke mentions it was the Pharisees, you know, uh, I think we already uh, understand they're not out to truly help Jesus. Maybe they're just trying to get rid of him out of there. That's my guess. What's Jesus' answer? Go tell that fox. <laughs> fox? What's the deal with that? Tricky. Tricky and cunning, sly, devious. I think there's another angle, too. Yeah. You know, he's not going to be deterred by threats from any third-rate politician. You know, some fox out there trying to yip at his, you know, heels or whatever. Um, You know, he says, hey, everything's planned out. You know, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. You know, it's, nothing's going to change. It's not Jesus' career is not going to be shortened by any threats from, you know, that fox, you know, that, you know kind of uh, pipsqueak, uh, you know, king. You know, it, 
The Herods were always uh, funny anyway. They loved the title king, but they were anything but a king. You know, they were the best governor. You know, but you know, it sounds good to call him king. Jesus calls him what he really was. And uh, besides that, it's not possible that Jesus is going to perish outside of Jerusalem. Herod's not going to... Herod can't get greedy. You know, Jerusalem's got first claim on the blood of uh, prophets and people like Jesus. Kind of got a monopoly on uh, martyring uh, God's servants. So if Herod wants to kill him, he better get to Jerusalem. That's the only place that'll happen. It's kind of ironic. Uh, but, you know, in all this... It's not Herod that's going to decide where, when, and how Jesus is going to be killed. That's all according to God's plan. <coughs> you know, Jesus is really not worried about him. Uh, you know, when you know that God's in charge, and you know you're doing what he says, then you don't have to get all bent out of shape over threats and, you know, dangers and things like that. I mean, whatever. You know, you just, uh, you, you, you do, you protect yourself in the best way you can, but you do the Lord's will. And that's the way it is. And he'll take care of us however he chooses. You know, so Jesus is calm. You know, he does, this does not unnerve him. It doesn't rattle him. Thoughts and comments through 33. When he's talking about today, tomorrow, and the third day, is there some hidden reference <coughs> to the resurrection and all of that? Or is he just using a nice literary triplet? I think he's using a nice literary triplet. That's what I think. Just checking. And then he turns to Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are said to her, I wanted to gather you. You know, I wanted to, wanted to bless you, but you refused. Now that's interesting. God doesn't overrule man's free will. You know, can we refuse the grace of God? I mean, Calvinism talks about irresistible grace. Well, here's an example of grace that was resisted, so I guess it was resistible. You know, God wants to bless us, but but they wouldn't have it. And so he says, behold, your house has left you desolate, or left to you. I, I think the idea is, he's leaving. He's not a part, he's not there anymore. You know, it's their house now, it's not God's house. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, I'm not sure what that's saying. Is, is, is God going to leave them until such time as they're converted to Christ, any one of them? Or is he going to leave them until it's the second coming? You know, they're going to have to bow down before Jesus and praise it. Uh, I, I can see that in a couple of different ways. But. Thoughts and comments? Well, we've got uh, chapter 14, Jesus.